Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. And uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. It's going to be our starting point. Um, if you're new with us today, we're really glad that you're here, really. And uh, excited to open the Word of God with you. To catch you up quickly, this whole year for our church has essentially been teaching on the doctrine of the church. And so um, that's where we've been through a lot of different angles and elements of the nature of the church. It's not very popular today to teach about the church. Um, It's not popular to sing about the glory uh, of God in the church. And here we are doing it. Um, And we need to do it for a lot of different reasons. And uh, I just want to say, if you're new with us, whether we're your church home or not, um, as time rolls along, uh, we're just glad to serve you this morning. And we do believe you'll find our church to be a, a loving and sweet family of God here in Bloomington. Acts chapter 6, um, let's just begin reading in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procris, and Nicanor and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in grace you have given us your words. You've given us your law. You've revealed to us the work of your apostles and prophets in history and have directed our steps and given us wisdom here for your church. I pray that we would heed it. And God, I pray against that cynical, uh, malcontent spirit against your church. Um, Father, I pray that you would lead us to repent of our... Uh, hearts, willingness, and, and being quick to despise your church and to not take seriously the need to live in the church like you have directed. And so we pray for your help and unity, for our growth and wisdom and love. May the good gift and blessing of the right kind of peace dwell in us in the midst of this faith family. We love you, Lord, and we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. No one comes to church today to learn about the church. You know, it seems like a weird thing to have to say. But that's the day in which we live now. Every simple thing is now weird to say. And so, no one comes to church to to learn about the church. It's now our church comes to church to learn about the church. But no one, generally speaking, comes to church to learn about the church. It's, It's really one of the reasons why there's such decadence in the church across our land, and um, why no one loves the church of Jesus Christ. There's just a cold lovelessness 
towards the bride of Christ. And not just in a big picture, universal, global, you know, uh, visible church sense, but no one just loves their church. It's just so hard to find someone who just loves their church. And I'm so glad that that's not true here. But generally speaking, it is true. And one of the reasons is because um, pastors have neglected teaching about the church. So pastors have neglected teaching what they ought to be teaching um, for, because they know, they know why people come to church today. People come to church today so that they can get a slight emotional therapy fix and so that they can feel slightly better about their life that's barely being held together. And trust me, I, I know exactly what that feels like. You know, on Friday this week, I was thinking, maybe I need to preach one of those sermons about just how to survive life. You know, like I'm not, like, I, I, I understand, trust me. You know, it's like, it feels like the twilight zone in my house for the last six months. Um, and, uh, but the fact of the matter is, we don't come to church just for a little emotional therapy about to get like a little shot in the arm just for how to survive the week. We come to church to be edified in the things of God and to learn about who He is, to know Him and love Him and obey Him, and uh, to love our neighbor as ourself, starting in our families and in our church families in the world. And so, church really, pastors have made church about us feeling better about ourselves, and that's the end of it. And it's like, first of all, would somebody just ask, is that really actually working? On the whole, as we look across the United States of America, is all of our preaching to help people feel better about themselves? Like, on the whole, are people feeling better about themselves? These kinds of things no one ever wants to think about. No one thinks that they're worth spending time on. No one ever thinks about what wisdom is required in a church family for it to function with good order and true peace. No one thinks about how the church life is entirely relational and everything that we do has to do with one another and uh, before God. And no one wants to think about what wisdom is required in order for real love to grow amongst us. Someone, you know, it's, it, it's, it's all kinds of things, but you, someone, someone, someone used to say to me all the time, um, you know, the, the, the church's budget, that's just, that's the secular work of the church. So I kind of separate things. We have like the, you know, we have the, the holy part of the church, and then we have the church's budget, which is the secular part of the church. You know, secular is like, this is godless, <laughs> You know, it's like the, so the church's budget is godless. And you just, you just shake your head and you just think, everything is to be made holy and sacred before Almighty God, including the church's budget. Absolutely everything. You know, it's not like all of a sudden there's some elements over, over here. And so that's what you would do with, with a passage like this. Because what you think, if you have any understanding in Acts chapter 6, is that I'm going to preach about deacons, but I'm not. It's a trick. <laughs> and what you think when you come to passages about the church like this, is you think, well, 
I just try to stay out of church politics. Like, do you realize that comment is already not doing very well in regards to church politics? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> you're not doing a very good job at it at all. <laughs> you're creating them, actually. So it's not about politics. It's about relationships. It's about love. It's about wisdom uh, in how we treat one another and how we function with order that reflects the order within the Godhead itself and the order that He has given in Scripture for His church. Does God allow us to think about elements of the church that He has revealed to us in Scripture pejoratively? Negatively? Does God give us freedom to look at truths revealed in His Word about His church and to think about them pejoratively? No, He gives us no freedom for that. He gives us truth about His church for us to love and obey, and when we obey, to be blessed by. There's no freedom to look at Scripture and what God has given us as a gift about His church to think of it and cast it all in a negative light. No, you need to repent of your cynicism and love God's words about His church and figure out how they go together for you to live them. So, what I actually am doing today for some of you is going to be the strangest thing, and for some of you is um, going to be the one thing needful, and for some of you is going to be scary beyond belief. But the, 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 the message today is essentially this: a, a short argument for why the con- a short argument for why the congregation should have authority. A short argument for why the congregation should have a say a voting authority on some things. In other words, why does elder rule not mean that the congregation has no say? That's not what elder rule is. Now, already, across this church family, you know, um, depending on exactly where you come from, but some of you have sat in congregational meetings where there was votes and the Thing that you, the, the one thing that you took away from it is um, as everybody yipped and yapped about completely unimportant things and it was complete chaos and strife and division and there was no peace and you know, somebody was on a power trip and functioning with vain conceit and the, and the congregational meeting was full of rivalry and you just walked away and you said, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. Some of you, so for some of you to hear that, (laughs) for some of you it's actually been a relief the way we have functioned in the beginning of our church because um, the way we have functioned has avoided that danger. Because our form of elder rule hasn't given the congregation any say about anything. Now, you all know that we haven't functioned as if you have no say. You all know that we've taken very seriously the thoughts of the congregation and have worked very hard, I think, at congregational consensus 
generally in everything that we've done. But I'm unsatisfied with that. I'm unsatisfied with that scripturally. I, um, the, but oftentimes what we do, right, we, we, we just jump between dangers. <laughs> you know, it's, we recognize something's dangerous over here, but then we, so we jump over here, but we don't recognize what's dangerous over here. All we can sense is that it feels better than whatever this was. But we don't actually know what the danger is here. So let's take our form of church governance. <laughs> it's just so bad. Now, for some of you who have Baptist backgrounds, to hear a pastor ever saying anything about their church is so bad, I know, just doesn't, like, compute. But we just do that all the time here. So <laughs> I'm, tired. I'm tired of the kind of Baptist who has an answer for everything and knows everything, and everything's perfectly propped up and clean, and nobody ever has to learn anything else. Everything's hit a ceiling. Everything's hit a ceiling. The whole church doesn't have to learn anything. Nobody has to be stretched or grown in their love. And so what happens is we end up with just kind of plain Jane, average, really loveless environments so often. It's like there's nothing left to reform in the church of Jesus Christ. And yet then you, then you look out at the horizon of the church of Jesus Christ in America and you just think, oh my goodness. The only thing we need is reform. So on the other side of the coin, though, you have um, the difficulty of congregational meetings. And then on the other side of the coin, you have the horrible danger of elders ruling and domineering over the flock and the people of God having no say whatsoever with anything. They just have to go along with whatever. You know, never mind the fact that once they don't like what the elders do, they're going to vote with their feet anyways. And I could just tell you story after story, it's exhausting of the lovelessness of elders towards the sheep. It's just exhausting. I get so tired of hearing about story after story where the elders just changed the bylaws and they, they announced it to the congregation on a Sunday morning and then they, they're like vexed that the congregation didn't just immediately obey them. And I'm like, you idiots! Of course they didn't. Of course they didn't. You know? And then they just go, well, you should just trust us. Why would we trust you? <laughs> what else are you going to just pull the rug on us about? You know? And how does that promote good order? And how does that promote love and peace in the congregation? And I tell you, story after story after story, and... I'm just exhausted of pastors who think that's the way things are supposed to be. You know, it's like, do we have to look further than our background <laughs> to know that something's screwed up? So, where you come from um, will matter a lot for what you hear, uh, how you hear this morning. And I'm going to do the best I can to present a case. I do want to tell you, we're not getting rid of elder rule and elder leadership in the church. That's not something we're doing. What we are saying, and I've told, you to, told this to our church kind of here and there over the course of the last year, is in some things the congregation needs to have a say. 
And um, what we see, when you see, we're going to look at a couple passages, but if you just start in Acts chapter 6, what do you see happening? So um, there's a need in the church. And the need is actually, it's like people think there should never be problems in the church. And here you have the apostles failing to feed widows. Just get your mind around that for a second. The complexities of church life, here in the chaos of church life, you have the, um, the Hellenists, right? the Greek-speaking Jews, arising against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Right? Legitimate complaint coming from the congregation. Hey, something is failing here, and it's of high importance in God's agenda. The widows need food. Right? That's how plain problems are in church life sometimes. Okay? And so what do they do? They come up with a solution. Right? And so they appoint qualified men to take care of those needs. But here's, uh, today's message is kind of about the how. How do they appoint these men? All right? And so what I just want you to notice here is that uh, the apostles say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. In other words, there's a congregational responsibility here to help in the identification of qualified men to help um, with the need. And then go down to verse 4. Because the apostles need to focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer. You know, right? No church leader can handle all the needs of a church. That's not how a church works. It's not how a church functions. It's not how it should ever function. And no one should ever expect that to be the case. You know? It's like... It's like people in congregations always want to criticize the church leadership about something, but it's like, hey, let me help you learn to do that exact thing. Let me help you. I'll strengthen your ability, and you can make us stronger as a church because we can't, we're not going to always do it. Get, the apostles didn't get the widows fed. <laughs> you know? But then what happens in verse 4? We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said did What? It pleased the whole gathering. And what I want you to understand is you don't have, in this case, you don't have the apostles just going, okay, there's a need, so this person, this person, and this person, they're now installed into this position to serve in this task, and it's just, everybody just got to live with it. It's actually pleased the whole congregate, the whole gathering. So the congregation actually was considered, you know? If one of these men, if the whole congregation was against them, they wouldn't have ended up in that position. Okay, now you say, yeah, but that doesn't mean that, it doesn't necessarily mean that there has to be a vote. And I say, and I say you know what, I'll grant you that. I'll give that to you. It doesn't necessarily mean that there has to be a vote. But at some point, there are enough things that the whole congregation needs to be heard, and a vote can clarify it. And so what I'm not arguing for this morning, I'm not arguing like a snob who 
thinks that Scripture so neatly nails down all of these points about church governance that everyone else who does it a little differently is just wrong and in sin. That's not what we're going for here. But we're trying to follow principles of wisdom and how this best works itself out in a congregation in order to promote the leader's sensitivity to the congregation, sensitivity to the need to be well-informed to make decisions, their sensitivity to the congregation's questions, and uh, sometimes the edification of the congregation that's needed in order to bring the church along to a good desired end that pleases God and pleases the whole gathering. Okay? It's all about people. And it's all about how we order ourselves before God in a way that will um, serve His purposes and protect the good peace that we have together. So in Acts 6, you see this. Now, if you just flip over a few pages to Acts chapter 15, which I've went through earlier, earlier this year, but um, I want to just call your attention, call your attention to um, Acts chapter 15, verse 19. In following. So remember, there's, this is the main conflict of the New Testament. And Acts 15 is the effort to solve the main conflict of the New Testament. It has to do with Jew and Gentile and the Gentiles' inclusion in the covenant. Okay? And so uh, they sort this out, and a group with the Apostle Paul is sent from Antioch to Jerusalem, and they debate this issue. So here you have the apostles themselves and the elders in Jerusalem having to actually work out an issue. You know what? They didn't know everything. Even the apostles just didn't have every single answer easily worked out without having to actually have some work through something. And so they work it out, and then James, the leader of the elders in Jerusalem, stands up to speak, and he speaks, and then in verse 19, therefore my judgment is... So he's providing leadership. A lot could be said about the importance of leadership in the church, and how James is a leader among leaders, and the, you know, the overlap between um, pastor and elders, etc. No Baptist ever wants to have to think about that, but there you go, that was for free. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn, who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then what? Then what happens? So, the... Uh, judgment. Here's a judgment that's reached. Everybody's considering the judgment of how to report back to the Gentile churches. Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with who? The whole church. Now, did they take a vote? I don't know. But, they at least knew it seemed good to the whole church. And that's what you have to have. Especially when it comes to essentially doctrinal understanding of the work of God in history. You know, there's good application to like 
can't really have um, uh, the elders all of a sudden just going, well, we just changed our doctrinal statement this week. Just want to announce that to you. So you have, then it seemed good to the apostle and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. It's fascinating how this works out because Paul and Barnabas couldn't handle this. Were the people at Antioch not going to trust Paul? Oh, we don't know for sure, but there's wisdom in sending... Like, Antioch came to Jerusalem. There's a decision reached. There's wisdom in sending people from Jerusalem back to validate the decision and to bring it with authority. This is what is to be followed. And then to help the church in Antioch and then to be able to help the churches beyond to have trust that this is the way forward for the Gospel amongst the Gentiles. So the point being, with the whole church. Now, turn to one other passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and this has to do, this really is in the context of um, the man who was disciplined from the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who has now repented, and the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Anytime someone has moved down the road of unrepentant sin, and they need excommunicated from the church, is it not just painful to all of us? It's just so painful. The whole thing is just so painful. For such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So there's there's the Apostle Paul calling for a restoration and a reconciliation from repentance that's taken place. And right there's a lot there's a lot here for the love of the congregation. You know when someone is, is been caught up in heinous sin and they've actually repented and now your grace has to grow in your love for them (laughs) and you have to forbear with them and love them and care for them and communicate your love for them. And the whole congregation is involved in all of this because the pain has been borne by all of you and so, so must the restoration be. Because a repentant person actually knows the damage they've done. And they will feel like no one could ever love them again. Okay, now, the point being here in verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, church discipline and church membership are tricky ones when it comes to congregational voting. um, Because it is true that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when the man, right, who is living in immorality, just really bad immorality in 1 Corinthians 5, and the church is just going along to get along, because that's what churches do. They just go along to get along, and they don't deal with sin. And so um, when, that, when the Apostle Paul rebukes the Corinthian church, he doesn't just rebuke the elders, He says to the church, you are arrogant. 
because you won't remove the evil man from your midst. You're arrogant. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, if you just tolerate evil, it just spreads through the church. And key being tolerating evil, especially unrepentant evil. And so, it's tricky because you could make an argument that the congregation needs to vote in cases of excommunication. But it's tricky because there are a lot of cases where the whole congregation wouldn't know enough information, nor necessarily need to know enough information, in order to actually have to make a vote that carries the responsibility of I know enough of the information to have to vote to excommunicate this person from the church. So that one's tricky. But the point being, in the restoration, it says the punishment by the majority is enough. That means, would at least have to mean that even if we didn't vote on that one, that the congregation did what was required of it and removed the evil man from their midst. Otherwise, you would never have the effect of repentance that's so beautiful here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is just a beautiful passage of repentance and reconciliation. And the congregation then, as a whole, has to welcome the person back into its fellowship and to the Lord's table. Okay. So, when it comes to good order in the church and congregational authority and what issues to vote on, these are some of the clearest texts that involve the whole of the congregation in decision-making. Okay? All the details aren't worked out. You know, God didn't give us a process of two-thirds majority vote or 75% majority vote. It's just not all in the Bible. We're trying to use principles of, best, of wisdom and good order and peace, but with the consideration of these passages of Scripture in the background. Okay? So, there's theological reasons. Maybe if they're not exegetical, you understand exegetical like it's very specifically and clearly stated in a, in a phrase or verse of Scripture. But there are theological reasons to do this too that are more of a con- uh, the, the built on what we understand the church of Jesus Christ to be. So, what is the church? Well, it's a corporate body covenanting together under the preached word of God and the administration of the Lord's table and baptism. That's the essence of the church under the authority of elders. Okay. And so... Um, the wholeness of the church and the corporate nature of the church, not just like the church is His body globally, although there's, that's true too. We are a body of Christ. And in our wholeness, we need to think about our wholeness. So here are a couple theological reasons why um, voting may be a wise thing for the church to do on some things, and especially the things that affect the whole body the most. I'll give you a list in a second, but they're primarily on the things that affect the whole body the most. Right? It's not, it's not like, okay, this is what happens, this is what has happened in a lot of churches. It's, it's like, you know, 
can we spend $1.99 to go get a new pack of pens for the church office without a church vote? You know? And it really gets that stupid. It just gets that stupid. And so, and you're just like, how greedy must you be as a congregant to be that worried about the $1.99 spent on the pack of pens to help the church's mission? You know? I wrote my sermon with a pen on paper this week. You know, that's dinosaur-like. I know, no one does that. (laughs) I prefer it at this point in my... I prefer it on many Sundays at this point in regards to preaching, but, like, that's the kind of stuff that just is stupid. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things like this. The church is a whole body, so what affects the whole body are the things that the whole body has to participate in with a say of some kind. Okay? Second would be, that means since we are a whole body, we actually bear a corporate responsibility before God. Our church as a whole corporate body will give an account to Jesus for our faithfulness to be His church. You don't just give an account to Jesus like yourself. You're actually responsible to help the church give a better whole account to Jesus. You're responsible for that, not just for yourself. So, we bear corporate responsibility, which means we have to give an account to God as a corporate body. Which means you have a responsibility to to not abdicate your responsibility in the church. To not just kind of exist, you know, like, and just kind of float through the church's life and never know anything and never pay attention to anything and never really have love and concern for the people and the direction of the church and the decisions of the church and the doctrine of the church and the love of the church. Um, And let me just tell you, as leaders, we're not helped by a congregation that abdicates its responsibility to be Christians and to be Christians in His church. We're not helped by that. We need your perspective. We need your thinking and your gifts to strengthen and edify the body. We need you to give your time and your talents and your treasure to the work of God. To the building up of the body. I could could give several examples of how that's happened in the last several months, even in the life of our church, about how the comments of the body have been so helpful to us and the thinking of the body has been so helpful to us as leaders in the church. Well, to promote good order. God wants order in His church. And here's, here's what this requires. It requires elder leadership. But it requires elder patience that we would all submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit together. To the work of the Holy Spirit through the life of our congregation. And that sometimes the elders will put something forward to the congregation and it won't actually pass. Or it might pass, but it might pass at a level that we're not that comfortable with. It slows things down. And you know the whole reason, you know the whole reason why we have elder rule today the way we do and why we have had it historically, why we've had it, right? Key word is efficiency. 
That's the first thing. But the, why is the efficiency so important? Why is the efficiency so important? Right? It's just rooted in corporate board ropes. That's what it's rooted in. You don't have the kind of elder rule that we currently have in the history of the church. It's like maybe somebody should have thought this is a bad idea. Oh, goodness. Well, it's rooted in corporate boardrooms. Well, the key word is efficiency. Well, why? Why is efficiency the goal? Those of you who pride yourselves on efficiency, like some of this stuff is just going to drive you nuts. But in a good way. <laughs> a disciplining kind of good way. In the flesh, I can be very, very efficient. When I was younger, I was way more efficient than I am now. What's fascinating to me is I think I'm far more useful now. Why efficiency? The reason for why efficiency is because elders don't trust congregations to do anything well. That's the whole underlying reason. That's what that's what happened. That's that's why that that's why. And, and I'll tell you, this is exactly how it, this is exactly how it works from pastors and elders who want to be efficient and who don't love the congregation and who don't have faith in the Holy Spirit to work through the congregation. This is these are the things they say. They say things like this: How can you give the same voting authority? to someone who's a new Christian that you give to an elder who's mature in the faith. And I say, I'm just not that worried about it. Because I'm not worried about one person who's a new Christian being awful. My underlying assumption about the saints of God is not they're all awful. I'm just sick of pastors who despise the sheep. I'm sick of elders who despise the sheep. They're God's saints for crying out loud. How can you treat them like that? How can you talk about them like that? Oh, if you want to get me in a huff. <laughs> and so I... So I say, well, everything's not being entrusted to the new Christian. We have spirit and dwelt believers. And the Holy Spirit works through the church. And for crying out loud, why is it so bad if the congregation didn't just rubber stamp whatever your idea was? Maybe you shouldn't actually do it, you're so wise. You know, no one, an, elder, an elder never thinks that they're just full of themselves. They just think the sheep don't know anything. Just shame on us. It's all horrible. And so it promotes good order because it actually requires patience and love and work and individual work and corporate work. It just requires work for the church to grow in godliness in love. And then fifth theological reason, it just encourages congregational ownership of the church. 
It encourages congregational ownership of the church. I already said this, but we need your gifts and your perspective and your wisdom, and it doesn't help us if you abdicate your responsibility. Okay, so what should we vote on? I'm just going to cover these fairly quickly, but here's, here's what we're suggesting to you. Because this is, what, this is what our elders think we should do. Okay? These are the th- kinds of things we should be voting on. Um, you understand we're working on our bylaws this year and seeking to make it all healthier and better. So these are the kind of things that we would want to put in there. And so I'm putting them out there for your consideration. Church officers, you know, pastors, elders, deacons. I would add to that missionaries and missionary support, church officers. Um, that's, that's the first thing. And that one's probably one of the most actual obvious in Scripture. That's actually one of the ones that in the passages we read in Acts 6 where there's an appointment of men, and in Acts 15 there's an appointment of men. Like That's one of the most obvious ones, actually, that the congregation should be involved in. Um, Secondly, this, the terms of the pastoral call. The church should be voting um, on church officers, but also, what's their job? What are they here to do as a pastor in the life of this congregation? Thirdly, now here's an interesting one, to remove a church officer. <sighs> right? Just know that if we actually go that route, that would create some pretty awkward situations sometimes. And the question is just how comfortable are we living with some awkward situations in love and perseverance and forbearance with one another for the good of the whole? Because what always happens? Why is this, why is this actually a thing? Well, what always happens in churches? The senior pastor fights for the right to have all hiring. Do you guys know this? <laughs> if you don't know this, you need to know this stuff. The senior pastor always fights for all the rights of hiring and firing of his staff. Always. You know, this is why this is why even Tim Keller, like Mr. Nice Guy to the whole church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America, Mr. Nice Guy never ever had an associate pastor on his staff. Because an associate pastor in Presbyterian polity has to be fired by the congregation. So when he had a ginormous staff, what were they? They were not associate pastors, they were assistant pastors. Which is Presbyterian, you know, PCA, Book of Church Order. They're assistant pastors, and the assistant pastors get to be hired and fired by the senior pastor. Mr. Nice Guy, come on. Come on. Right? And I'm mean because I'm saying you should have a vote. And I'm saying I'm willing to live in some awkward if we have an associate pastor, guess what? Who the church loves because they've been caring for them and they know them. And that what happens is then the senior pastor fires them and the whole congregation's devastated and nobody ever knows anything. Just live with it. That's how it goes. And it promotes such good order in the church today. Everybody, it just goes so well in all the congregations where that's what happens. And it's a gift to the senior pastor to have to have accountability to the whole congregation, to have to have a gift to the whole congregation 
that has to vote on removing an associate pastor so that someone who just gets under his skin a little because he's impatient and he's efficient and he's whatever and he can't... He doesn't just get unilateral authority to blow the church up with his decision. Mr. Nice Guy. What a joke. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's removal of a church officer. I would say this, approval of the annual budget the congregation should vote on. Right? We've, never, we've never done that. We should do that. It's the whole church's giving. The whole church has a responsibility to be mindful of the whole church's resources and where they go. We should approve pastoral salaries and benefits. Now, there's a scary one, right? Joel and Esteban and I should have to leave the room, and then you guys get to talk about it. And then you have to approve it while we're out of the room. And if you decrease our salary, we have to be happy with it and submit to the Holy Spirit. Really? I'm kind of happy with the fact that most of the college students who, like I have, I'm very happy with how the church takes care of us and our family, but uh, I kind of like the fact that most college students coming out and graduating, like their first job, they make more than me or close to more than me most of the time. I kind of like something about that. should have to authorize expenses by the elders over a certain amount. The goal can't be, if the elders need to spend $200, we need to have a church business meeting for it. But there should be an amount somewhere that gives freedom for the church to actually keep functioning. But there's an amount, a ceiling, to what the congregation should have to approve. I would, I'm, I'm just going to throw some numbers out. Nothing's decided. Okay? This, is all, this is all strongly suggestive. more than that, probably. <laughs> yeah. um, this is what we think we should do, and we think you should come along with it. But you understand, like, I'm not, like, there's no finality to what I'm saying right now at this point, okay? Probably in, like, $15,000 or $20,000 would be a ballpark for a budget, church budget our size that would give some room to the, to the elders to make some decisions. Remember, like, for instance, when we had the, um, when we bought all those discs to sell in order to do the whole thing with Camp Hunt and the new baskets at Cars Farm Park and took the old baskets out to Camp Hunt, et cetera, it was like uh, $7,700 or something, you know? And um, my hope would be that everything that we want to do that would, would not necessarily require a church business meeting. So $15,000, $20,000, something in that ballpark, I think, um, would be good. Seven, to approve transactions on land or property. Those, are, those should be congregational votes. You know, the elders shouldn't have the freedom to commit to the purchase of a you know, $750,000 church building without the congregation actually voting to do so. Because there's a lot going on there. You know? 
We also would be asking the church for a three-year capital campaign and all kinds of things like that. So um, the good thing about budgets when the congregation has to vote on it and building purchases and capital campaigns is when the will of the church has spoken, we all have to trust God with that. And then we all have to feel the responsibility of our vote to do what we can to see it happen, for us to see our church meet its budget. You have responsibility for that. You voted it. (laughs) Then anything that the elders bring forward for a vote, Anything motion, any motion made in a congregational be- meeting by the congregation would have to be dealt with by the congregation by means of a vote. Um, bylaw changes. So we've been working on our bylaws forever, and we're really trying to have a document that can work for our church by our congregational meeting in December. And, but <laughs> how do you do that with elder, an elder rule form of government? Do we... Do the elders decide to give the congregation a right to vote so they can vote? You know, like, how does that actually work? Well, we'll figure it out. But bylaw, we're not just going to change the bylaws and give them to the congregation. The congregation's going to have to vote on them. But our bylaws don't tell, us, tell the congregation right now to vote on them. So the elders have to decide that we're going to tell you to vote on them. I think. I think. Well, those are the kinds of things that a congregation needs to have authority and real say in. Something that actually has enough say that it has a hook to it. Not just a comment in a discussion necessarily, but the vote actually gives it a hook. And so what do we do? Well, so now, so now we enact, let's say we enact congregational voting and now our church is safe from all dangers. Well, that's of course not true. There's no system that is perfect because we're all sinners. So what we actually have to do in order for this to work well is deal with our own hearts, to love Christ's church, to seek eagerly to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to work hard at our humility and not just our strife and our dissensions and our cynicisms and our vain conceit and our rivalry. We actually have to seek to be godly in how we conduct ourselves. And I'll tell you, it's a little scary because I don't think my greatest strength is thinking on my feet in a congregational meeting when I'm under pressure and the congregation is asking questions and all of a sudden I don't know the answer and now I'm feeling insecure and then how can I answer this in a way that's going to be helpful? It's a little scary. But, and I think some people are better at that than I am. It's scary. It's scary for everybody. What if the congregation votes for something that I don't want? You mean you might have to submit to the Holy Spirit too? What if my friend in the church votes against what I think? You submit to the Holy Spirit. That's what you do. That 
That's what's required of the Christian. You don't get to just hang on to whatever you want. That's what I'm trying to give to you so that I don't just get to hang on to whatever I want. Or our elders don't just get to hang on to whatever we want. What do the elders do if the congregation doesn't approve something? They submit to the Holy Spirit. Or they do work if they've failed. They do work and then bring it back to a vote again if that's the right thing to do. It opens up all kinds of dangers for us. Look, you just love each other. Because someone thinks differently than you about the direction of the church doesn't mean you, all of a sudden your love grows cold in your heart towards them. It doesn't mean they're not a saint of God. They're your brother and sister. So you just love them. Well, we need God's help for this. We need God's help for this. Honestly, it's going to be kind of new for all of us as we try to figure it out, as we consider it, as we talk through it, and then as we functionally try to do it. It's going to be new for all of us. And so we kind of have to approach it with the humility of, this is fairly new for all of us and our church. And yet, I'm convinced it's good for all of us. It's good for all of us. So stand with me for prayer, would you? Father in heaven, Hear our pleas for unity in your church. Make us one as you and your Son are one in glory before the foundations of the world and reigning over an eternity. Unite our hearts together in love. Help us to walk humbly with our opinions and repent of our pride and of thinking we know all the answers for everything. Help us to walk in patience and forbearance with one another. Father, I even pray that you would give us more opportunities that we would have to live out obedience to the word forbearance in your church, in love. Grow our patience and loving kindness for one another. Help us to love through very difficult situations and in disagreements. And may we all submit to your Holy Spirit and use uh, the wisdom that you've given us and your truths to think about you and your ways. Father, would you help us to walk humbly under the blood of Christ our Lord and to submit our lives to your words, your directions and laws and commands, your precepts. They're perfect and righteous altogether. Not one of them fails. And may we have faith in your words that encourage us to consider what is good for the whole church in order to serve you well. Thank you for the truths you've given us this morning and the insight and help us to walk together in unity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.